Welcome to Thoughts from Home, your conservation podcast from the National Conservation Training Center. We're located along the Potomac River in historic Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and are home to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast on ticks from NCTC. I'm Jim Siegel. I'm the Ecology Curriculum Manager at NCTC. And today I'm joined by Roxanne May, Mike McAllister, and Catherine Blalack. And we're all going to be talking about the life cycle of some of the common ticks that you might see in the Eastern Panhandle. Well, let's get started. There are three species of ticks that you might encounter in our area. The most common are dog ticks but there are also black-legged ticks, which are famous because of Lyme disease. And then there are the last or one that's been creeping up from the south, which is the Lone Star tick, which is kind of looks like the Lone Star of Texas on the animal itself. That's interesting, Jim, because I've noticed this year when we're hiking, when we walk out of the woods, we're covered in ticks, and it just seems like it's a little bit more this year than usual. So I'm really glad we're doing this podcast so that I'm aware of what they are and, and how I can get them off me. And um, you're talking about the species of ticks. So which one is dominant in this area? I mean, is there like a specific tick that we really need to look out for? The most common ticks are the dog ticks, and those are the ticks that you might have on your household pets. But there are also pretty common are the black-legged ticks, and those are the ones that we're most concerned about because those are the ones that spread Lyme disease and other diseases that people can get from ticks. So, Jim, you mentioned one of the species coming from the south is the Lone Star tick. Do we have to be worried about anything with that particular species? Lone star ticks are also known to carry some of tick-borne diseases. And so in our area, typically we don't have to be concerned with the others. But as the lone star tick becomes more common, we have to be concerned about that. Is that the specific tick that causes the red meat allergy? Yes, that's the one that causes the red meat allergy. And that's a, a very unusual kind of thing, which is caused by sensitizing your body to a sugar molecule. And so it's an interesting one, and it's actually a permanent problem that somebody might acquire, and it's not something that you can recover from. So I guess there's no cure. You just have to avoid those red meat. You just have to, yes, you have to avoid red meat, possibly for the rest of your life. Wow. I've never heard of that before. It's amazing. You know, we're talking about diseases, and you mentioned Lyme. So How do you know if you have Lyme disease and what kind of tick gives you that? I know that they're really small, right? So they're hard. Yeah, the black-legged ticks are very tiny. So the typical ticks, like on the dogs and cats, which are those dog ticks, are actually fairly large as tick goes, right? They're very small animal. By the way, ticks are arachnids. They're closely related to spiders and to mites. As an adult, they have eight legs and two main body parts, their head and their thorax and abdomen are one unit. But the black-legged ticks are very, very small. Even as adults, they're only maybe the size of a sesame seed. So they're very, very small. The larva and the nymph, which can feed on people, are so tiny 
that you almost might not be able to see them typically if you're not looking closely. And that's where the danger is, I think, because they're so small. Mike, you were just talking, uh, you just had one on you and you got it in your driveway, right? And it wasn't even in the grass. I mean, yeah, I was working on my truck in my gravel driveway and I was I'm edged by grass and I'm edged by deer traveling area for three hours. And uh, I didn't even think to check for ticks. And I woke up the next morning and I found a new mole and it was a tick. <laughs> and I was, It was at my first deer tick. I made it 36 years of playing in the woods without a deer tick. And uh, um, I've mainly had a lot of dog ticks, you know, but I can feel them. They're big enough that I can feel them creeping on me. I can feel them in my leg hair or moving up. Yeah, didn't even know to look for them. So I'm ultra vigilant now. Yeah, good. It's funny that you're talking about that because I know immediately now if I feel something, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a tick. And at first I would freak, you know, now I just drive it, pull it and flick it. You know, it's gotten (laughs) to be a normal thing. So I've had them in my truck. You know, I've, I've transported them. They may not have attached to me, but I've had them you know i found them crawling around my interior of my truck the dog ticks mind you and they're pretty easy to see so we're always looking for them so i guess like how can you prevent tick bites i would say that the the best way you could prevent them is by setting up yourself for success in terms of the kinds of clothing that you wear the shoes and boots and socks that you're wearing and how you're kind of tucking everything in properly and It's good to wear light colored clothing if you're going to be spending a lot of time outdoors as opposed to wearing your favorite black pants. This is not a good time to wear your darkest clothing if you think you're going to be in tick country. I think that that's the most important thing. And then also to bathe, you know, to remove your clothes after you're spending a lot of time outdoors and washing them and showering properly and kind of looking yourself over. That's probably the best thing that you can do. I don't find that tick repellents work very Mm. well. A tick attaches to you. It's a mechanical thing where the tick is waiting in the vegetation for you to pass and brush past it. And then it, it leaps from the vegetation onto you. I don't think they're necessarily smelling you and crawling through the vegetation to find you like some other organisms that might be trying to hunt you down. There are places in the world where parasitic animals will, you know, come from far and wide by smelling you. And I don't think that's how the ticks are getting on you in the first place. When I was looking at the deer tick that I removed from myself, (laughs) I I had a big magnifying glass, like a 20 power, and I was checking it out to make sure I got its mouth parts out of my skin. And I noticed that the legs on the deer tick had little barbs on them or little like graspers. It looked like little Velcro legs kind of. And they must be able to grab onto it. Yeah, it it helps it uh, maintain its position when it gets to where it wants to be. You know, they're very powerful organisms. You know, it's hard to get them off. And sometimes when you're removing them with tweezers, you almost have to pluck a little bit of your flesh to remove them. And so when you get them, they're having a little bit of you in their mouth still attached. And that's actually better than leaving the head in. So it's important to remove the animal in its totality. Ticks can find their host through like the heat, your body heat and moisture 
and vibrations. So typically they stay like on the edge of a trail because they know that animals are passing through or people can pass through and they just get on you and they can sense that heat and moisture. So thought that was By really- the way, you know, a, a lot of different kinds of animals get ticks. So turtles like box turtles get ticks, certain kinds of lizards, big lizards like in California, alligator lizards have ticks. Um, some of the fence lizards that we have in the eastern United States get ticks. Besides deer and mice and rabbits and dogs and human beings, even the reptiles get ticks. Snakes sometimes have ticks. It's it's a crazy thing. So their like overall role in the environment is population control. <laughs> their role <laughs> in the environment is since there's space on animals' bodies to suck blood, to take that space and suck some blood. That's their role. And then, then they do pass on diseases that sometimes are lethal for animals, but typically they're not. Typically animals don't die of tick-borne diseases. That's the issue of having deer in your yard or white-footed mice, deer mice in your yard. It means that you're interacting with the different kinds of tick-borne diseases that those animals can carry. Jim, you were talking about getting a tick off you. Once a tick is on you, do they always attach? And if they do, what is the proper way to get it off? When I was little, they used to like light a match, blow it out and put the heat on the tick to pull its head out. I mean, is that the right way? To, what should we do? Well, many times you're crawling on you before they attach. And so you're feeling them, you know, crawling up your leg or crawling behind your ear and you feel them. So many times they walk around looking for a good spot. And Mike mentioned they're often attaching to your stomach, maybe at, sometimes behind your knee is a very common place, sometimes behind my ear or sometimes at the base of my scalp. That's not an uncommon place to get a tick. And if you can remove them quickly, usually within 24 hours, they aren't able to pass any disease onto you. So that's an important time to not leave ticks on you. And the best way of removing them, I think, is a bit with a very precise tweezer. And I wouldn't use matches and just think that that's going to be the best way of removing them. Because then it, you're depending on the animal kind of flinching to, to give up by being burned. And I would think the best way would be to remove them with a tweezers. And so you're grabbing it very securely and you're removing the head and the mouth parts at the same time you're removing the animal as a whole. Yeah, different like outdoor shops, they have these little tools and it kind of looks like a bottle opener piece. Right. And it's just like a little thing that can scrape the tick off. So those are right. helpful. So if you're outside or in the field, definitely check your clothes for ticks. Take a shower after you've been outside, even right. like your driveway, like Mike got a tick. So just check your body for ticks in those places. So, yeah. One thing I learned, I was listening to a radio station and they were talking about ticks and home remedies. And they actually had to amend what they said because they were talking about using an ointment or peppermint oil or olive oil. And they would drop a little drip on the tick and the tick would, you know, drown or not have oxygen or something and back itself out of you. But it regurgitates. Apparently right. it regurgitates when it leaves and then there's a better opportunity no or a higher opportunity for bacteria transfer. Right. So mechanical removal is what I learned. Right. So isn't that interesting? You don't want the tick to go through it 
its normal feeding procedure. You want to remove it as quickly as possible. And basically, if you're within 24 hours of removing them, your likelihood of getting Lyme disease from a black-legged tick or any kind of tick disease is really reduced. I had a Rocky Mountain spotted fever in the state of California, and that was a pretty bad illness. It caused swollen lymph nodes and things like that. And so my body really responded to it very quickly, and it caused a lot of swelling in the lymph nodes of my body. So I guess if you remove a tick within that 24-hour period, you know, you're safe normally, but afterwards, what are like signs? Um, well, yeah. Do you see like a bullseye people, or anything or swelling? Yeah, many people develop a bullseye rash, but unfortunately, there are many people who get Lyme disease that no bullseye rash is either ever seen or even ever developed. And so it's common for that to happen. But for when you think about all the millions of people who have suffered from Lyme disease, surely a huge number of them never saw any bullseye rash, or at least were not aware of one. And so to, to rely on that characteristic body response may not protect you from Lyme disease. Yeah. And that's important. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't want to be looking for this magic sign of a bullseye rash. But if you do have a bullseye rash, that's a pretty good indicator that you have acquired Lyme disease. But there's lots of people, unfortunately, that don't develop that. And they develop flu-like symptoms and aches and pains in their joints and a million other kinds of. Many of the symptoms of Lyme disease also look like other diseases, flus and colds and different kinds of aches and pains that people have, fibromyalgia. You know, there's a number of things that people often mistake one disease for another disease. So the Lyme disease is sometimes hard to diagnose because it presents itself so differently in so many different people. I guess earlier we were talking about like the biology of the ticks and kind of they're related to spiders and mites, they're parasites, uh, they feed on our blood. And I just want to talk more about that. So they have four stages of life. They go from egg to larva to nymph and then to an adult. And they typically live from like two to three years. And earlier off of the recording, we were talking about how typically they prefer different host animals at each stage of their life, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it looks like in the larva stage of the black-legged tick, that's when they often are feeding on deer mice. And that's when they may pick up some of the diseases from that host animal. So this is important to note, the tick itself isn't born with these diseases like Lyme disease or Rocky Mountain spotted fever. They pick up those diseases from their animal host, in this case, the mice, or in another case, from white-tailed deer. So that's interesting to note that they're actually, they come disease-free, but they pick it up from the animals that they're sucking the blood of. They're passing on the disease to another species of animal, right? So in this case, a black-legged tick that's fed on a white-footed mouse and picked up some Lyme disease is then passing the Lyme disease to the human being in possibly the next stage of its life, in the nymph stage or in the adult stage. So you mentioned that ticks can be found on even turtles 
And I just yes. wanted to point out they could also be found on mammals, birds, and amphibians yes. as well. So yeah, yeah. I mean, they typically can't live underwater, so you probably wouldn't find a tick, let's say, on a frog. <laughs> but I have seen ticks on box turtles, different kinds of lizards, on rabbits, squirrels, raccoons, and lots of animals. And one thing that's interesting is that many animals are not able to remove the ticks very readily. So deer have problems losing the tick in terms of rubbing themselves, while something like an opossum is very, very adept at cleaning the ticks off of its body. That animal doesn't typically spread disease because it removes ticks so easily from its body, while something like a deer or a mouse or a rabbit can't remove ticks very easily. And the moose are famous in the northern parts of the country that they have great difficulty removing ticks from their body and sometimes get thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of winter ticks, which is a special kind of tick that moose uh, suffer from. And it often even kills the young moose because they have so many ticks on their body. They said that in the article on moose, they said they can consume a liter of blood, each tick. Isn't that wow. crazy? So if I mean, you have that's tens, significant. So if you have yeah. tens of thousands of ticks on you, you're literally not, you're getting anemic. You're, yeah. you're getting anemic. And so many times the young moose, the fawn moose die because mm -hmm. they able to get enough nutrition and enough oxygen to their bodies because they're losing so much blood. Isn't that crazy? You yeah, mentioned possums, and I think they are our friends in combating Lyme disease because one single possum can eat, you know, 500 ticks in a season. So Right. Oh, even, I've, heard even, I've heard even <laughs> thousands of ticks in a season. It may be up to, you know, 5,000 ticks because the way an opossum moves through its environment, it picks up ticks every day in walking through the long grass and walking through the brush. And so it's picking up ticks every day. So every tick it gets, it's eating and swallowing it. And so they're removing the ticks from the environment. Hundreds, if not thousands of ticks from the environment to you. So they're good critters, huh? Are ticks only out in the summertime or are we like prone to get those in the winter too? I would say in the dead of winter after the main frost, you're not going to be encountering ticks, but they can be active up till the frost period. So therefore, the, the fall and the early spring, the middle spring, you can still get ticks other seasons of the year. Probably the only safest time is the dead of winter when every day is frosted and then they can't be active. Okay. But you can, at, at NCTC, I have encountered ticks in the fall when the leaves are off the trees, but it's just right before the coldest periods. Yeah, I think the most active months are like April through September, so. Right, right, which is, you know, they're cold-blooded animals, and so they need warm weather to be able to move, and that's a key thing of any cold-blooded animal from a, a snake. If they don't get warmed up, by the sunlight, they can't move. And so yeah. that's very important. Walk on the shady side of the mountain then, eh? <laughs> <laughs> that lee side. <laughs> but it does mean that you never have to worry about your ticks while you're playing in the snow, right? That's, I was, that, that's a good yeah. thing. That's good I was to know. 
amazed to learn that they live up to three years. I figured their lifespan was weeks to months. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, some of those ticks that I've seen on animals, sometimes the ticks get so swollen with blood. It's crazy how large they get. Mm. And so that obviously takes more than just a few days. Right. That's something that they're sucking blood for some period of time and they get very enlarged and swollen. It's amazing how they like little balloons of blood. It's kind of nasty when you think about it. Yeah. With the life cycle and stuff and the living through the winter, do our milder winters have an effect on their numbers? Yes, they do. So, for instance, like we talk about the winter ticks up in the northern part of the United States and Canada. Now, because the climate has been warming in the more boreal regions of the North America, that the winter ticks population is exploded in certain places. And so the moose are really, really suffering from these animals. Now, in the lower parts of the country, in the more temperate parts of the country, it does mean that the winters are shorter and the falls and the springs are a little longer. The winters are more mild. So there's a longer time for the ticks to be active. There's less time for them to die during the winter time. And if they can find some cover, they might be able to survive a winter that normally, you know, a winter of below freezing weather and even below zero weather would kill ticks. Well, now we don't have very many of those really, really, really cold months and the coldest periods where you hear of places where, oh, it used to be 20 below zero. Well, around here, particularly in the eastern panhandle, it's hard for us. It's not common for us to get 10 degree weather. And, you know, and so ticks are surviving uh, winters longer than they might. And so the population is more robust, possibly every year that we're warmer. It means the populations can build up. To me, it seems like there are so many more this year than what right. there have been. So that makes sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. Particularly as we have more and more mild winters, it means there's more survivorship of these little parasitic animals. Yeah. All right. Well, I we guess we it. talked about the species of ticks and basically what they are, the biology of them, when we can see them out in nature how to get them off of us when they do attach and how to prevent and protect ourselves. So I hope this has been fun and informative for you guys. Thanks, Jim, for being here and have a great afternoon. Thank you for listening to the National Conservation Training Center podcast series. If you have feedback, thoughts, or stories you'd like to share, contact us at nctc underscore podcast at fws.gov.